Well, good morning. It is good to sing the praises of our great God. It is good to humble ourselves in prayer and recognize that it is not in our strength that we do this, but in his. And it is good to open his word together. And so if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, turn to uh, Hebrews chapter 3. We're continuing in our series through the book of Hebrews this morning. As you turn there, <clears throat> uh, as often as, as we can, my wife, uh, Becky, and I, and, uh, and, and my morning routine includes listening to two podcasts, one of which is The Briefing by Dr. Albert Moeller. This past week, Dr. Moeller discussed an article published by a newspaper called The Economist covering a scientific study of, man, of men's brains, specifically uh, after becoming first time, a first-time dad. They reported that a man's brain literally shrinks. Now, all the wives in the room, go ahead, smirk, nudge the elbow. But in all seriousness, the study revealed that the shrinking of the brain is not, I quote, evenly distributed. The biggest reductions are in the areas at the back of the cortex where information from the retina is processed and interpreted, end quote. What they mean by that is that the area of the brain that reportedly shrinks is that which is, and I quote, associated with daydreaming, mind wandering, and thinking about self. Literally shrinks. Muller adds to this, quote, evidently the part of the brain that has to do, do with encouraging the wandering of the mind as a, as a man becomes a dad actually shrinks. So what on earth does this story have with Hebrews chapter 3? I'm glad you asked. I found it interesting as, as uh, my wife and I were listening to this article uh, earlier this week, how God designed the male brain to literally shrink in, this, in the specific areas that entertain self-centered, wandering thoughts, if you will, childish thinking after they become a dad. It is as if God has designed men's brains to respond accordingly to a new level of affection, care, and responsibility. The revelation of their new daughter or son not only changes men on an emotional level or an intellectual level, but it also on a physical level. It physically changes them. And in our text today, we will read an imperative command from the author of Hebrews to consider Jesus. And the author then will briefly describe the impact of such consideration that it will have on not only the individual, but on the community. I'll give you a sneak peek on what the, this impact is. It changes everything. There's not an area. It's not just one area of the brain that's impacted. It is every area of everyone's life that is impacted by this. Our worship, our purpose, our identity, our views on community and suffering and this life. I hope what we walk away with from the first six verses in Hebrews chapter 3 is that we will see that God's people hold fast with hope, considering the Son superior to all, which changes everything. Will you read with me? We'll be in chapter 3, verses 1 through 6 in Hebrews. The writer of Hebrews writes this, Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, 
the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confession, our confidence, and our boasting in our hope. So these short six verses, man, as I was putting this together, I'm like, this could be like four sermons, not just one. But we're going to hit through all of them today. I'll do my best. Uh, the Hebrews author begins our text this morning with the word, therefore. It's an adverb connecting what we have already read about with what is going to be written. Namely, Jesus, who has revealed true and lasting salvation through his suffering. This Jesus is superior. This is the argument of the author of Hebrews. He will build this throughout his letter, that Jesus is superior. This is the foundational argument that the author of Hebrews is laying down here. Jesus stands above all, for he is truly and fully God. Additionally, Jesus can offer true and lasting salvation to man, mankind because the Son, truly and fully God, took on flesh to represent humanity, so that the loving kindness and mercy of God would be known through the suffering of the Son. Mike preached on this last week, and I would encourage you, if you did not hear that sermon, all of our past sermons are available online. You can go to rdchurch.com and listen to that so you can get the, the context of the brevity of this statement. The Hebrews author is building up his argument to show his readers that Jesus truly is better. We've seen that already in the first few chapters as he's building these arguments. And he says, so what is Jesus superior to? What have we seen already? Jesus is superior in the very beginning of his letter. He says he's superior to the world, all things, universe, everything in time and space. That was in chapter one, verses two and three. Not only in the physical realm is Jesus superior, but Jesus is superior to created beings of the spiritual realm. We saw that the end of chapter one and into chapter two. Heavenly messengers, angelic beings, Jesus is superior. In those two chapters, angels are referenced 10 times. The author of Hebrews wants his readers to know Jesus is better than angels. He is superior to angels. Jesus is superior to what angels have done or brought, the means to all prior means of righteousness through the law, through bloodlines, through past covenants. Jesus stands above them all. Now, he will spend a good portion of the letter systematically dismantling all that Hebrews and the Jewish people typically look to for their righteousness. We'll see this as we continue through this letter. The priesthood, the sacrifice, the tabernacle and temple, the law, the Sabbath, the patriarchs, Abraham, Moses, David, the prophets, every system, every pillar that God gave to the Jews as a guardian, to use Paul's language, the writer of Hebrews will declare these were but shadows of the real substance, which is Christ. 
I mean, the beauty of this letter is that every word that is written by the author of Hebrews, he is saying, look to Christ, look to Christ. No, don't look at these old things that used to be, you used to be a way of finding righteousness. No, look to Jesus because Jesus is superior. So this therefore is there so that we can see he's building this argument. We'll see this again and again throughout this letter because it's, it's, it's a progressive argument showing all the coming, culminating in the end where he gives praise and glory to Jesus. Therefore, holy brothers, and that, that word there that's translated as brothers can be translated as brethren, as church, as brothers and sisters. He's addressing the church here, those who share in the heavenly calling In our short six verses today, we see the author of Hebrews begin and end this section of his argument with the concept of the church, God's people. Here designated as brothers and sisters whom God has sanctified or called out, separated from the world, we are are also those who share in a heavenly calling. If you recall, when we went through the book of Philippians, this is a strong thematic element that Paul uses. And it's that, that gospel lens of, of not looking to the here and now to find our significance and our identity, but looking to eternity, looking to those promises fulfilled by God. And so the, the writer of Hebrews says, we are brothers and sisters called out from this world, and we share a heavenly calling, one that is eternal in nature. Our eyes are focused on a kingdom that is yet to come. Our citizenship in that kingdom is far more significant than the earthly kingdom that we find ourselves. That is good news. It was for them, and it is for us. Those who are in Christ can face the trials and tribulations of this world because our eyes are set upon eternal things. And those things shape how we view our time, our mission, our purpose, our resources, our entire life here and now. The author of Hebrews writes, brothers and sisters, called out by God, you who view the world through the gospel lens of eternal perspective, consider Jesus. So what does he mean by this? A quick word study reveals consider to be more than just a casual consideration. We consider what shirt we'll wear to church or where we're going to go to lunch afterwards. Those are inconsequential things that we consider. This word carries more weight, more significance than that. Consulting a Greek lexicon, it'll tell us that this word will give, means give very careful consideration to some matter. Think about it very carefully. Consider closely. I like the way the NIV translates this word as fix your thoughts on. The exhortation to consider Jesus is more than a casual consideration or a periodically thinking about Jesus. Rather, It is a continual acknowledgement of Christ's superiority over all things. Things that we may be tempted to elevate in our life. Relationships, resources, plans, dreams, desires, these things that we can elevate above their station. When the author of Hebrews says, consider Jesus, he's saying, 
Put Jesus in his rightful place above all of that. Why? Because Jesus is superior to all things. We might get tired of of hearing that because that is the continual theme. But when scripture repeats it, we need to take note. Jesus is better. Consider Jesus, who is the apostle and high priest of our confession. Apostle? Wait a minute. Aren't those the guys who were eyewitnesses to Jesus' earthly ministry? Yes, but the word actually means one who is sent. So we must step back and ask ourselves, what is the author of Hebrews wanting us to, to know about Jesus? He's wanting us to consider, to think carefully about Jesus in all things in our life to consider him, his lordship over us. And then he calls him the apostle and high priest of our confession. Apostle simply means, like I said, one who is sent. Think of a delegate. It's the Old Testament idea behind this word is that priests who were sent to represent the temple as they collected the contributions to that temple. Consider Jesus, who he is and what he has done. Apostle describes his, his, in his divinity that he is this divine messenger. In his divinity, he came pleading the cause of God to show humanity what God is like. So the first point of emphasis is Jesus' divine nature as he comes as God, revealing to us what God is like the apostle, the sent one, and high priest. The second point of emphasis is that Jesus comes as a mediator. In his humanity, he pleads the cause of man to God. And so when the author of Hebrews says we need to consider Jesus, he says consider Jesus in these two roles, how he shows the Father to us, how he reveals God to us, and how he mediates for us on our behalf, an idea that he will develop more throughout this letter as well. Mark Strauss, author and professor of New Testament studies, writes this about this word, uh, the first word, apostle. He said, apostle simply means one who is sent, and Jesus was certainly sent from God to minister to and save a sinful world. He was God's personal representative and showed humankind in clear and tangible ways what God was like. He demonstrated in no uncertain terms the sometimes overlooked aspects of God's character, love, mercy, grace, forgiveness. Jesus demonstrated what God is like. God's people hold fast with hope. We consider the Son superior to all. Having given the command to place Jesus at the forefront of our thoughts, both Jesus and what he has done and who he is, his revealing God to us and his mediation for us, he moves on to uh, contrasting Jesus with a pillar of the Jewish faith, particularly with Moses. In verses 2 through the first half of verse 6, we see some contrasts or comparisons uh, here. Jesus with Moses, showing how Jesus is better, and he uses some imagery, uh, a builder 
with the, the, the house and a son and a servant. He uses these, this imagery to, to reveal the contrast that he's trying to make. And the emphasis that he is making here is that the son is greater than the servant, the contractor greater than the construction project. The servant Moses was faithful in the face of persecution, adversity, and betrayal as a servant. The emphasis is not negative against Moses, but positive, emphasizing Christ's superiority. He says, just as Moses was faithful in all of God's house. For Jesus has been, in verse 3, for Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. Moses was Israel's prophet leader par excellence. They looked to Moses as the standard of prophet leader, meaning that they esteemed Moses as the greatest of the prophets and leaders in Israel's history. Through Moses, God gave the law, delivered the people from slavery, established the nation of Israel. Through Moses, God's name was revealed, his personal name. God's presence was mediated through Moses. And then the author of Hebrews quotes a very interesting verse. In in verse 5, he quotes Numbers chapter 12. And I wish we really had time to sit here longer, for there's so many connections in the Old Testament. And I think one of the intimidating things for me with, with the book of Hebrews is how much is referenced to the Old Testament that the writer just assumes his, his readers know and will make that connection. And uh, we have to actually follow the, the little numbers that are in your Bible as you're reading through it. Those little numbers send you over to a column that usually says, hey, look here, look here, look here, look here. And this are those, those hyperlinks a Hebrew audience would have just said, oh, oh yeah, I remember that. I remember that story because you know, a lot of them for education memorized much of the Old Testament. And so they would have made these connections. These stories were part of who they were as a people. We have to follow the little numbers so we make these connections and not write our own meaning into the text, but dive into what the, the writer intended for us to see here. And so he quotes Numbers chapter 12. Numbers chapter 12, I will summarize this. Uh, we don't have time to, to read it or we'll be here all afternoon. Numbers t- chapter 12, this is uh, the incident where Moses' sister Miriam and brother Aaron slander Moses. They're rebuked. And disciplined as a result. And the scene is that, that, that God calls Moses, Aaron, and Miriam to come before him. And he calls out the sin of Moses and Aaron. And, and, and he speaks to, uh, sorry, of Miriam and Aaron, the sin of Miriam and Aaron. And he speaks to the calling that is unique to Moses' life. And in this, as, as, as God is, is speaking to the calling of Moses, he says, Moses was, was faithful over all of my house. Verse 5 quotes it. Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant. The point the author of Hebrews is making by quoting Numbers chapter 12 is that Moses, as the prophet leader, God established was called out from among God's people to fulfill a unique role 
that had unique consequences. Let me read the full quote from uh, Numbers chapter 12, just a few verses um, here. It says this, if there is, this is God speaking to Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak with him in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. With him, I speak mouth to mouth clearly and not in riddles. And he beholds the form of the Lord. Moses had an intimate connection with the Lord beyond what others knew. The other prophets were not superior. Miriam, Miriam and Aaron were not superior leaders to Moses. But the point is this, that the author of Hebrews is making. In quoting this, Jesus is superior to Moses. Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. Verse 3. This would have been a radical statement to any reader with a Jewish background. This would have gotten their attention. As Michael Kruger, a theologian and author, writing on this, says, writes this. He says, Moses is in the house as part of God's people, but Jesus is over the house. And Moses is described as a servant of God's house, but Jesus is God's son. They're on the same team, but Jesus surpasses Moses. Again, the author of Hebrews is not discrediting what Moses has done. He's saying Moses was faithful among all God's people, but as a servant, not a son. In fact, the role Moses played was, as the author of Hebrews says, a testimony of those things which were to be spoken later. Moses was a foreshadow of the builder of the house. Moses, the servant of the house, was a shadow of what was to come and be fulfilled when the sun appeared. And we see that, that to use John's word, we see the sun appearing as the word became flesh, pitched his tent or tabernacled among God's people. God in flesh, the sun, faithful over the house, superior to all things. And so the author of Hebrews contrasts this, uses a, a large pillar in the Jewish faith to show how Jesus is greater than those things which they used to look to for righteousness, the law, all that which came through Moses, their bloodline, their identity. He's going he's gonna to hit every one of these areas to show his readers that Jesus is better than everything else this world has to offer. Even those things which are good, Jesus is better. And I want to spend the last of our time here focusing on <clears throat> the second half of verse 6. Because after the author of Hebrews <clears throat> argues Jesus' superiority over Moses... <clears throat> He then turns to his audience and he says, but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son and we are his house. So house is referenced seven times in these six verses. And as I said earlier, whenever you see a theme or a word repeated in scripture, we need to take note. It's not there arbitrarily. It's there for a purpose to get our attention. 
This is the theme of what, the central theme of this passage is the, superior, the superiority of Christ and the implication that that reality has for God's people. Jesus is better. Why is that important? Because we are his people. We are the house that he is building. It is important for us to see the superiority of the builder as the house. There's so many reasons why that is important because sometimes we think we are the big deal. It doesn't take long to look at in, in the marketable realm of Christianity that we have a superiority complex. We tend to think too highly of ourselves. And if we like to think that this is unique to our time, it's not. It's not. Paul, Paul wrote it, wrote about it multiple times actually, but I think Philippians chapter two where he says, don't think too highly of yourself. Consider others better than yourself. Well, what was he speaking to? This problem. We forget about the builder and we start looking at the house and go, wow. Look at those awnings, man. They're awesome. <laughs> Look at that shiplap. It is beautiful. <laughs> that paint color is perfect, right? And, and the, the author of Hebrews is saying, listen, it's not about the house. It is not about the house. It's about the builder. It's about the builder. Central theme in this passage, as I just said, but we'll say again, is the, the superiority of Christ and the implication that reality has for God's people. Because Jesus is better, we, if you profess to be a follower of Jesus, we are different. And so we have this small little conclusion here that wraps it up with him beginning referencing the church and closing referencing the church that if we are his house, God's people, the church, we are, if indeed we hold fast our confession and our boasting in our hope. We are the house. This is a reference to the true church. As the builder knows the house, Jesus knows his own. The author of Hebrews wants his readers to know the true church or people or house of God consists of those who place their faith in Christ, the apostle or sent one, who perfectly reveals God as the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. That was back in chapter 1, verse 3. Jesus is not like God. Jesus is God. And he came to demonstrate what God is like so that we might see that through his life, his actions, his words, his sacrifice. So the, the house of God, the people of God, are those who place their faith in Christ as the sent one and those who look to Christ as the true and better mediator. Superior to the law as, as delivered by angels for righteousness. Superior to Moses. As Michael Kruger again writes, Moses was part of the people of God, whereas Jesus is the creator and builder of the people of God. A, categorically, a categorical difference between Moses and Jesus. Moses is like us. Jesus is the son. The son of God, fully God, who became like us 
uh, so that he might mediate for us, that he might stand in our place, God in flesh, to mediate for sinful man. Kruger continues, why is Jesus able to do this? Because he is God. Hebrews 3, verse 4, for every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. The author of Hebrews here makes it very clear. Jesus is superior because he is God. And the people of God are to hold fast in every situation. The challenging ones, those that bring heartache, the joy and success. In fact, in those high moments, it's easier to think of ourselves more than it is to think of Christ, but we are to think of Christ always, to continually consider Christ above all things. We are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Now, this is a conditional phrase, but I think that the implication here is that those who have faith in God are the house. They are what God is building, and the, the condition is more of the application of that. Because we are God's house, we hold fast our confidence. It's not if you hold fast your confidence, then you are God's house. It is more a result of the work of God in us than a work of us earning something from God. Does that make sense? Because that's something we can, we can mess that up pretty easily and think, okay, it's about me holding fast. No, <laughs> no. Again, his illustration was Moses. Remember, like the greatest leader Israel had ever seen? And he's like, if the greatest leader of Israel has ever seen is just a servant in the house, we need to focus our attention where it ought to be, and it's not on our works. Our works flow from his work in us. It is a response, not an attempt to earn favor. A response because we have favor granted to us because Jesus is greater. Friend, maybe you're here today and have not fully submitted to the authority of Christ. Maybe there are things in your life that, that hold too great an influence over you so much that they shape the way you look at the world. They influence your actions. It may be a relationship, a voice. It may be something you read that, that holds sway over you, the way you view the world. These six verses confront every other influence in this world. These six verses confront us with every other area that we look for for significance or look to for righteousness. These six verses confront us and say, what are you looking to for your acceptance, your righteousness, your importance and significance? What are you looking to? Is it who you are? Your family line? He'll address that. It's coming. If it's who... Is it who you know? Is it what you know? 
Is it what you have? These are normal things outside of Christ that we as humans look to for significance. But these six verses confront us and say, no, the significance that you have, the only significance that you have that matters is in Christ. Finding your identity in him and him alone. As Tim Keller says, we naturally take good things, elevate them above their station to become ultimate things. This is what scripture defines as idolatry. Those good things that we elevate above Christ. And this is the argument of the book of Hebrews. Nothing is above Christ. Nothing in this world is more significant and more important than Jesus. And so I ask you, friends, if you have yet to respond to the good news of what Jesus has done, and that good news is that Jesus has saved sinners. He has made a way of salvation when there was none. Sinners, those who rebel against God, can now be reconciled with God through Christ. Scripture tells us that we are to respond to this good news in repentance and faith. If you have not responded to the gospel with repentance and faith, I would plead with you now, trust not in your works. Trust not that you are a good person, but trust in Jesus alone for salvation. Look to him. Brothers and sisters, if you profess to be of the house of God, to be people of God, then I have a question for us. Do we consider Jesus above all else? And before you answer that too quickly, remember the weight that was placed on consider Jesus. Do we consider Jesus? Is he a part of our internal life? external actions? Does he influence the way we make decisions, the way we treat people, the things we say, the things we don't say? Is he influencing us, shaping us, conforming us into his image? Do we consider Jesus above all? More than a new dad experiences change in his mind, in his brain, his thought and action, does Jesus take consistent priority in your attention and affection? Have you seen considerable change since coming to Christ? I love the fact that, I mean, for some people, it's immediate change. All of a sudden, they're a different person. For some people, It's a long progress, and it's beautiful. All of it is. God changing us into his image. But we ought to look back after following Jesus and say, yeah, I experienced just a little bit more patience than I used to. I'm seeing a little bit more love for that person that used to annoy me. And that is a work of Jesus, praise God. 
We should take a regular reflection, test this regularly with questions like, where are your thoughts? How much time do you invest in knowing Jesus through his word and in prayer? Is there anything that holds greater affection in your heart? Or can you say with the hymn writer, take this world, but give me Jesus? Other good test questions for our own hearts is, do we, do we love God's people? Even those that are difficult to love. Do we love them? Do you love God's word more than water and food? Do you love God's word? And do you long for others to know his love also? And do you labor toward that end? Has the superiority of Christ changed you? The things you love, the things you do, the things you say, the things you think, has it changed you? Because it will. I'll let those questions linger because they're good to ask, not just once, but times. And it ought to turn us back to Christ. The, the, the sign of a Christian is not perfection. That comes Later, the outward sign of a Christian is repentance, recognizing when I wander and returning to the Lord. So brothers and sisters, may you and I consider Jesus over all and in all. May we be people who are shaped by his word, led by his spirit, loving others well because he has first loved us. Amen. Let's pray. God, this morning, we come to you. God, we are grateful for your word. We're grateful for these short six verses that carry so much weight. I pray, God, that we would not discredit the weight of your words on our hearts and our lives. God, may your word do its work in us. May we grow in our considering you. May we grow in our love for your church. May we hold fast, regardless of the circumstances that we find ourselves, may we hold fast to you, Jesus, seeing you as the prize worth running the race. And God, I ask that you would bring conviction and challenge to us, God, in areas where we are lazy, where we have disregarded your call and mandates on our lives and pursued other things. God, I pray that you would, would draw us back to you, that we would see you as you are. Truly, God, sent to us to reveal God's heart and love, justice and wrath. That God, we see all that you are in Christ, the perfect imprint. Lord, may we trust 
that you are mediating for us, standing in our place, pleading on our behalf. God, I, I guess what I pray for is that you would teach us to trust you more. You would teach us how to be the people of God. Not for our comforts or our success, but for your glory. Amen. Amen.